I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If people from outside Edmonton know one thing about the city, it's that Edmonton has a giant mall. West Edmonton Mall is the biggest in Canada, one of the biggest in all of North America. And with its two hotels and its pool and its roller coaster, it's a legitimate tourist attraction when it's not COVID anyway. But once you actually arrive in Edmonton, the thing most locals will tell you about is the River Valley. The North Saskatchewan River is surrounded by a forested area 10 times the size of Vancouver's Stanley Park, which also makes it a hell of a lot bigger than the mall. The river runs through the middle of the city, It's beautiful, and people are proud of it. It's also tangible proof that Edmonton isn't just, as the late great Alex Trebek once put it on Jeopardy, a petroleum and meatpacking city. The River Valley is great for walking, biking, or fishing, but not many people actually go in or on the river. There aren't that many beaches, and there's only a couple of boat launches. Plus, it freezes over for a good chunk of the year. So most people admire it from the shore, or the bridges, or the road. Which means the North Saskatchewan River has secrets. Undiscovered treasures from Edmonton's past that can only be uncovered by those who take to the water. People like Mike Lees. So like when you think of like who would find something along the river like this, well, it's the people that go down the river all the time. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. We are calling this episode A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forest. Coming up, Vancouver's Sam Mullins was trying to make it as a comic when a guy at a bar approached him and asked him to star in an upcoming film. The film was a zombie-themed driver safety video shot in the BC forest. Hijinks ensued. And as Peter rolls up the window, I know exactly what is about to happen. Wait, slow down, slow down, slow down. Peter weaves through the zombies at a frenetic pace. What? Hang on. But first, a story about what happened when a canoeing enthusiast took his reluctant buddy out for a paddle on the North Saskatchewan River and ended up discovering a giant chunk of history. Heads up, there is some language in this episode, specifically some enthusiastic cussing. It has not been beeped. To hear a version where it has, head to the Doc Project website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. CBC Edmonton's Ariel Fournier will take it from here. But first, let's get out on the river with Mike Lees. Perfectly weighted. Yeah, perfect. 
I enjoy, instead of a uh, night out on the town, a night out, like a Friday evening, nice relaxing way for me to spend that is to come down the river in the canoe. Like to unwind, just sit here. This is the best. So Mike started paddling when he moved to Ottawa for university. And when he moved back to Alberta, he decided to keep it up. He's a guy who, well, he describes himself as having his feet stuck in the mud. Not like stick in the mud, but stuck in the mud. Sometimes literally. He's always outside. He frames houses for a living. And when he's not doing that, he's in nature. With his family or just out on his own. Look, there's no one else out here right now. It's just us. There's nobody else that's using this waterway. It's just like, I don't know, I just find it's a gem. He wishes more people in Edmonton appreciated what we have. So whenever he can, he brings a friend. Last October, it was his buddy Jeff Penny. Born and raised here and never canoed down the river. Jeff and Mike are friends through their kids' hockey. They'd never been paddling together before. Canoeing wasn't really Jeff's thing. So when Mike asked him to come along for the first time, he wasn't sure. It was like 5 o'clock at night, and I really honestly didn't even want to go. I was like tired. I was like, oh, man. Jeff's a plumber. He has long days at work. So the last thing he wants to do is get up and go canoeing down a river that nobody really canoes on. Nobody except Mike, that is. But as I later found out, when Jeff decides to do something, he does not back out. So that's how this adventure starts. Mike and Jeff's trip on the river. Started paddling. <laughs> they're paddling along for about an hour. We had uh, a couple of beverages. And yeah, maybe they're having a couple of beers too. And then. I had to go pee, so we stopped. And this isn't a, we'll pull over at the next gas station situation. Jeff has to go now, and Mike looks for the closest place. Being an emergency that it was, we pulled over at a fairly inopportune location. Sheer cliff and hill, there's not really much spot to be walking and wandering. There's certainly no paths. So both the guys get out. And then Mike says something that was just plain weird considering what happened next. He strangely enough, said, as we were pulling up to the bank, and it's no word of a lie, he said, watch, we're going to find a fossil. Because Mike's that type of dude. He's a very outdoorsy type guy, and he's always into that kind of science stuff. And he gets on the bank, and he's looking at this little, like, crustacean-type shell. I found the skeleton of a crayfish, and uh, there's lots of crayfish in the North Saskatchewan. Jeff had never seen this before, and he found that to be quite fascinating. I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever. And I go to jump back in. He's like, oh my God, look at this. Look at this. So, yeah, I wouldn't have known what the heck it was. That's when I grabbed my phone, and I've basically got it on video. Never seen this before. And I more or less was standing at the time on top of the fossil. The thing they're standing over, it looks like a tree stump with bark and roots the whole bit. The only difference is it's not wood, at least not anymore. It's completely turned to stone. It's a petrified stump from a huge old growth tree. I'd need three of me to wrap my arms around the base of it. This is a tree, dude. 
And the guys, they lose their minds. It's fucking stone. It's a fossilized fucking tree, man. Look at look at these layers. Look at how there's rings, just like in the fucking tree, man. This is bark. This is fucking bark. This has probably been under fucking forever and ever and ever. Hey? Nito Cabido gang. Can we fucking take it home? Huh? Let's take it home. I'm coming back here. Oh, oh my God. Where are we? They were in the middle of the city. You can see skyscrapers from downtown directly across the water. But even though the stump is in a city park, it doesn't belong to the city. This is technically crown land, since it's so close to the shoreline. The stump could be theirs if they want it, though they'll soon find out it's not really that simple. And this discovery, it's rare. There's only a few other pieces of this kind of petrified wood this big in museums anywhere in the world. Mike and Jeff didn't know that at the time, but they figured they had something. They take some more photos, drop a pin in Google Maps to mark the site, and hurry home to review their footage. And in the clear, sober light, it still seems pretty exciting. They really want more people to see this. So they send pictures of it to the University of Alberta. I've never seen anything this big come out of our valley since I've been working here, and that's over 10 years. This is Lisa Budney. She's the curator at the University of Alberta's Paleontology Museum and was part of the team of researchers who Jeff and Mike first sent their footage to. Something unique to, um, to our river valley, so it's quite meaningful to me. I grew up east of Edmonton, so I have an interest in the city and the surrounding area, so it, it's a meaningful object to me as well, personally. So she sends the photos to the Royal Tyrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta, where some of the world's leading experts in paleontology are. A researcher there calls up Jeff after looking at the photos and tells him, this really could be big. He called me and he goes, Jeff, do you realize what you have? Like what you found? And I was like, no, not really. I was like thinking it was like 2 million years old. He goes, Jeff, it's estimated probably around 65 million years old. From Mike and Jeff's photos, the researchers use their understanding of this rock and their knowledge about the geology of the Edmonton area to estimate the stump is somewhere between 65 million to 75 million years old. It's from the Cretaceous period when the northern part of Canada was a small continent of its own. 70 million years ago, Edmonton was a muggy swamp, not a hockey town or a petroleum and meatpacking town, for that matter. There was a seaway running through what we now know as Alberta, and our tree, a conifer, was growing on its muddy banks. Dinosaurs would have lumbered by, maybe stopping to snack on some of the ferns at the base of the tree. It tickled a kind of childlike wonder for Mike. And they found fern spores all over the tree stump, so... It reminds me of, you know, when I was a little kid watching the movie Fern Gully. <laughs> to know that I found a tree that, um, you know, possibly the dinosaurs were eating from, that's pretty neat, you know. <laughs> this is a rare, lingering piece of evidence from that time. I just find it absolutely fascinating, you know, that once upon a time we were a Mediterranean inland ocean here in Alberta. And... Uh, to think that we've gone from that to uh, eight months of hockey is uh, a wild swing. <laughs> so I just, I find it very fascinating. 
Alberta is a prime location for finding fossils. It's one of the few places in Canada where the sediment from the Cretaceous period is still exposed. But to find a tree this size, and to find it in the middle of a city, that's a diamond in the rough. So Mike and Jeff decide whatever it takes, they are going to rescue this stump. Get it out of the woods and into a museum. But then the big question is, how to make that happen? At first, Lisa and the researchers at the Royal Tyrell think that the tree has stayed in its original place all these millions of years, which would be amazing. If it hasn't moved at all, there's more of a chance of understanding the environment around the stump and the world it came from. The bad news for Mike and Jeff is that that means they would have to leave it where it is. Basically, we weren't allowed to touch it because he believed it was in the original stratigraphic position. So we're basically just like counting our losses. We're like, okay, well, maybe we can't even do this. They can't issue a permit unless you're a paleontologist and that sort of thing. The paleontologists consider moving it. But getting this thing out would be really tough and expensive. And without a clear research objective, there's no funding for this. Lisa talked about the options with the paleobotanist at the university. First of all, I'm too old to go and wrestle with a stump <laughs> in the Viva Valley. That's Eva Koppelhus, the paleobotanist. Yeah, Lisa and I, we, we briefly talked about uh, trying, but then we both became like aware that it was, it was way too much for the two of us to even think about it. And then also you, you do have to have a very stable uh, boat uh, to uh, help take this out. And uh, in our program, we only had a canoe. <laughs> and I don't think it would have done it very well. Yeah, so the university eventually ruled out going after the stump. So if the researchers can't get it, they take a closer look at the pictures to see if Mike and Jeff can. And this time, they notice in the last picture, there are actually signs it has moved which means the province will give Jeff and Mike permission to move this thing, as long as they clear their plans for removing it with the province. Now the guys are excited all over again. They still want the world to know about their stump. So they decided they were going to have to get it out themselves. And they don't have a lot of time. It's mid-November. It's been more than a month since they first found that stump. Here's Jeff. I knew that it wasn't going to last the winter with the ice and the high rivers in the spring and that sort of thing. So whatever was down there this last season is now no longer exposed, probably, based on the erosion that happens each year. And that's why Jeff was so adamant that we get it, like, before the snow flew. In the spring, the bank would likely wash away when the river thaws, and the stump would fall into the river and be lost forever. So it's go time. Mike and Jeff have unconventional reconnaissance techniques. It's about a two or three hour paddle round trip to get back to the stump, which is not exactly convenient if you're trying to plan a homemade archaeological dig. But leave it to a plumber and a house framer to get crafty with solutions. Okay, so basically what happened was I, I set a pin when we were there after we found it. So a couple weeks after they first find the stump, Jeff is doing a plumbing job nearby. And I was doing a job there. He looks at the map on his phone. Clicked on the pin. And sees the marker he left for the stump's location is not far from his job site. It was probably about 200 meters from where I was. And I'm like... Maybe he can reach the stump from the shore. 
After work, he starts trekking through the woods towards that pin on his map. So I'm like following my phone and getting closer to his pin. I'm getting closer. And I look down, and I kid you not, I can see it. There's a stump at the bottom of a steep and muddy cliff bank. Not a place that you can just walk to. But Jeff and Mike, they are problem solvers. And as Mike would say, they're gamers. They're up for anything. So I called Mike. Who at the moment is on a date with his wife. I'm like, I could see this thing from the riverbank. We can get there. All we got to do is get down 100 feet from this, from the cliff. And he's like, okay. And Christina basically just said, yep, go, go with Jeff. Go have fun. Go on your little adventures. So Mike basically dropped everything. We went down, had a look, reassessed it. And for posterity again, they document the whole thing with video on their phones. We found a way down the river, river bank. So we are going to use that extension cord to rappel down cowboy style with these shovels. <clears throat> see what we can find. If you didn't catch that, Jeff said extension cords to rappel down cowboy style. They worked with the gear they had in their trunk. And with the extension cord tied around their waist, they rappel down 100 feet and go see that stump. It was so weird. There was nobody on the river. It was so quiet. There was like an eagle flying over our head. It was, it was just an amazing experience. And bingo, there it is. Just like they remembered a massive tree stump turned to stone. We, we got hyped up again, like we're going to get this thing. There's nothing stopping us now from actually getting this thing. But it's getting dark, so they go home and start scheming. The guys weigh their options. Bushwhacking and rappelling down that cliff and then up again with the rock. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. So ultimately, they decide accessing the stump from the river is their best bet. They're going to need to go in by boat. But Jeff only has a canoe. Luckily, they have friends. Friends with bigger boats. So we called a buddy of ours that had a boat. And he uses this boat for hunting. And he said that he can put a full moose in this thing. So we're like, oh, well. It can handle a moose. Why not a petrified stump? But as Mike says... The first time was a major fail. Yeah. They try lifting it into the boat with the help of a few buddies. But it won't budge. Turns out the stump is heavier than a moose. So they all get back in the hunting boat and head home empty-handed and come up with a new strategy. We came up with a plan to build a barge, uh, basically build a barge out of 50-gallon drums and so on. And we attempted to do that, did not work. They weren't sure how much the stump weighed. It could be 800, 1,000 pounds. They take a look at their barge and think it might not hold the weight of the stump. As it could have ended up in the bottom of the river. So they abandoned that idea too. We tried everything. We tried calling the local fire brigade. and The fire department politely declined. By this time, we're brushing snow off of it. We didn't really know what to do. That's when Mike starts to think it might not happen. It's, it was a question of like how much time and effort does one really want to put into removing this, you know, object. And, and I know for one, like for sure, Jeff was feeling a lot more ambitious than I was. Jeff is a man on a mission. Yeah, I would just, I don't think I could have actually, it would have bothered me forever. Like if I would have just left it there and let it go down river and I don't think I would have ever forgot it. So they soldier on. A friend of Jeff's has another idea. Find a company who does heavy work on the river and see if they can move an 800 
or whatever pound petrified stump. And they find Bill. If it's on, in, or around the water, uh, we do it. That's Bill Stark. He's a marine operations manager. He's done a lot of messy jobs. He's even helped paleontologists move rare finds before. But this request, it's unusual. Usually when somebody's picking something up, it's a man-made problem. Somebody's dropped a truck through the ice. People go out and sink boats. Things often need to get lifted or fixed. It's not uh, somebody lost a rock. (laughs) Once they explained what what they actually had and the situation, um, it became more intriguing. I didn't know him from a bar soap. I had no idea who he was or where, what he was capable of doing. So I was like, well, am I really going to give this guy the location of this thing? Anyway, I had to basically trust him. They're running out of time, so Jeff decides to go for it. Ice is starting to form on the river, and it might be too late for the season. The boat they need to move the stump can't run its engine if there's any chance large ice chunks could get sucked into it. This is our basically our last resort, and he had uh, the perfect boat to do it, to actually collect this thing. Uh, it was a flat bottom, almost like a barge. The front end drops down like an old World War II landing craft. So you can just winch it on. A winch is like a big mechanical lasso. The back of the boat opens up, and the winch drags it on. A lot better than a bunch of dudes struggling to lift this thing. Bill basically was going to give me an hour's notice if if the river conditions were right and I meet him at the 50th Street boat launch with the materials that he needed. So one day in November, when the conditions are perfect, Jeff gets the call. Well, perfect for November in Edmonton. Like, I, as soon as I pulled up, they're on the riverbank chipping the ice off of the boat launch so that they can actually get the boat in there. So I'm like, okay, well, this isn't going to happen. Mike couldn't make it that day, so Jeff brought a friend to help him with the wrangling. Meanwhile, I got estimates on the cost, right? So the the meter's ticking. So uh, it, it was very expensive. So I'm like, okay, well, guys, let's let's just get this ice off and see if we can get it on there, you know, trying to stay positive and get them motivated to actually do this. Then Jeff hops in his car and heads over to rappel down the bank again, so he can show the crew where to land. I look down and probably 10 feet from the bank, all the way down is ice. So there was no way that they were gonna be able to pull up to the bank to actually collect this thing. So I'm like, oh my God, I just wasted how much money, how much time. Then his friend who's there says, hold on, we can break through this ice, don't give up. He takes a crowbar into the frozen river and starts hacking away at the ice. And somehow that works. And we snapped off a chunk. It was huge. It was probably 25 feet long and 10 feet from the bank. Snapped it off and it came off in one big piece and the river swept it away. Like it was, honest to God, it was unreal. It was like the hand of God moved that ice for us. I'm telling you, it was the weirdest thing. But then an hour goes by, and the boat is still not there. And Bill is not picking up his phone. Jeff starts to wonder if it's coming at all. But then, there they are. And things happen fast. They tie a strap around the base of the trunk and drag it towards the boat. And then minutes later, they're back on the river, ready to take the stump to its new home. No sweat. Okay, some sweat. 
think that was the last uh, actual boating work we did uh, in in 2019. I think it was a little bit of the adrenaline of just finding it and trying the challenge to get it out of there and to actually make it work. Jeff watches the rock float safely down the river, moving from its resting place for the past 65 to 75 million years. Jeff calls the museum and brings it in. It's cheap labor right here. Now it's on display in the middle of the small room, still sitting on the wooden pallets they dragged it in on. At around 800 pounds, they won't be moving it anytime soon. But in a way, for Lisa Budney, the curator of the museum, it's not the discovery, but the discoverers that are the most impressive. You know, you said you've, you've met others, people who have, who have brought in things. I mean, I guess, have you ever met anyone like Mike and Jeff? Uh, no. <laughs> Mike and Jeff are quite unique characters. Um, their willingness to go the extra mile is exceptional. I've never encountered two people that were so enthusiastic about um, their find, but also their... Um, their willingness and acceptance of going through the proper channels in order to make sure they're collecting things properly. And um, so that makes them a great citizen scientist, and um, I'd be happy to work with people like them again. Eva Koppel, who studied it more closely. She took core samples to figure out what species of tree it was. She also looked at the surface of the rock to figure out what vegetation was growing around it. But she also marveled at these two guys. Pretty impressed because uh, after the first couple of times where I had been speaking with Lisa Bodney about uh, this find, I, I was thinking that it was uh, it was impossible. I, I just knew that I could not do it, but they were persistent. The benefit was that uh, the little Paleo Museum got a very nice display made on this and some awareness and some education for younger people and the general topic and I think it was it was awesome. I guess the way that I view anything in life is if it's there's an obstacle in, in my mind there's always ways around or over the obstacle um, and so that's always the adventure and that's always the adventure of anything. Like I'll be satisfied for a long time knowing that people are going to be able to appreciate this thing long beyond my life. <laughs> like this thing's going to be around well past my existence so. For Jeff, that was the whole point. Seeing it in a museum made everything worth it. it. It's everything we actually wanted to come from this. So, like, you know what I mean? And it, it's a it's a piece of the puzzle type thing. You know, people always want to know the value of things, and I believe that the value of certain things are not something you can easily make up in amount of money. It, it is something else that has the value. The value of that stump to those two guys is not something you can make into money. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Everybody in Alberta, it's their heritage. It's their uh, fossils. And, and I think it's great when people get reminded about what they have in their backyard. That's it. Allowing ourselves to be bowled over by the beauty and the history of the natural world we live in as Canadians. 
It can inspire us in ways you can't predict. That's what I admire about Mike and Jeff. They saw an opportunity and they took it. And they let themselves get lost in the wonder of this thing. And for Mike, even if they hadn't found anything, being out here, on the river, in the peace and quiet, that's part of the reward. People don't appreciate that. People don't know it. People don't feel comfortable enough being on the water to make those discoveries for themselves, you know? But it really is a museum just to be discovered if you take the time to enjoy the water. I have to remember that. Next time I have the chance to go on an adventure, but I don't want to leave my house, it could be a once in a 70 million year opportunity. That doc was produced by Ariel Fournier. It was edited and mixed by Julia Poggle. To see photos of The Stump at its new home in the University of Alberta's collection, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Coming up after the break, a story that proves the timeless adage, if you go down in the woods. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. And I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. Woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. Just under a decade ago, when he was trying to make it as a comic in Vancouver, Sam Mullins got the opportunity of a lifetime or possibly of the afterlife time? Here's Sam. I used to do these storytelling nights at a bar in downtown Vancouver. It's called The Flame, and comedians and people who want to be comedians go there to try out new material. The audience at The Flame includes a lot of people who make up the sort of old guard of the Vancouver theater and film and television industry from the 80s and 90s. Like, it's a good place to meet a guy who once held the boom on the set of The X-Files or The Beachcombers. So I tell a story one night, and I'm outside afterwards having a cigarette. I'm on the nicotine lozenges now, by the way. And this guy who I've never seen before comes up to me and he says, Hey, I really loved your story, but, but I got to tell you, the whole time I was watching you, my brain was lighting up. I was thinking to myself, oh my God, he would be perfect for the lead role in this project that I'm working on. He's like, do you act at all? And I was like, no, no, I don't. I'm sort of just a comedy writer. 
And he's like, oh, that's too bad because you, you'd just be so perfect. Would, would you at least consider reading a script if I sent you one? I give him my email and he sends me the script and he gives me a couple of days to think about it. At the time, I'm living in the dankest of dank basement apartments and I'm slinging waffles in a breakfast joint. And when I tell my coworker Kelsey about his offer, which was honest to God more money than I'd ever been offered before or since, Kelsey's like, What is there to think about, Sam? We're serving waffles here. I read the script. And I have to admit, the role is very much in my wheelhouse. And I understand upon first skim why the director is convinced that this is the role I was born to play. Because the lead role is entirely just a scared person running. Like, a guy who is the physical manifestation of fight or flight, minus the fight. So... It makes sense to me that someone watching me on stage would think that I would be the perfect fit as I give off big deer-in-the-headlights energy both on stage and off. The film that I've been discovered for is a zombie-themed driver safety video paid for by the municipal government of Metro Vancouver for internal use only. Essentially, the city was like, we need to make a video that communicates to city employees the following three points. When driving, be aware of your surroundings, focus on the road, and don't speed. So naturally, the only way that we can make clear these three simple points is by spending tens of thousands of dollars making a 10-minute short horror film set at the top of a mountain with an original score and a fully unionized crew. There were even CGI explosions and buildings on fire, but of course the most realistic of the Infernos would ultimately be the one made from taxpayers' dollars. So I read it and decide, I guess I'm an actor now? And I agree to be the star of this film. And in the negotiation, I'm somehow able to finagle a role for one of my friends, Peter, from my comedy troupe, which delights him because his basement apartment is even danker than my basement apartment. Now, Peter is one of my dearest friends, and... He's one of these people who can get away with anything. He'll show up to a job interview 15 minutes late, roast the interviewer to their face, and walk out with the job. He's charming and unflappable. So the shoot's taking place up in the North Shore Mountains overlooking Vancouver. That morning, I pick up Peter and we drive up the winding switchback roads, giant fir trees looming over us, blocking out the sunlight. Even Surrey doesn't seem to know where we are as we come in and out of cell tower service. It's one of those drives where just when you're convinced that you're on the wrong road, on the wrong mountain, heading the wrong direction, you've arrived. There's suddenly this massive compound where the big water reservoir for the city reveals itself in the middle of the forest. There's manicured lawns and all of the humongous facilities that house the water purification equipment and the freshly 
paved asphalt parking lots are lined with freshly white government Ford F-250s. As I get out of my car, I'm greeted by the director and am ushered to the makeup room where the makeup artist asks straight-faced, are you zombie or prey? And for the first and likely only time this will ever happen in my life, a director of a film gestures towards me and says, this is the star. And it plays out like this. Hey, even though the zombie apocalypse is upon us, look how this model employee, me, uses basic safety protocols to escape certain doom. This is where I work. I like my job. That's me. I'm the safety officer. 516 days without an accident. Until today. This was not a good day at the office. As my character and his co-workers try to escape from the George Romero-style zombies running from building to building with the undead in hot pursuit, we are confronted with opportunity after opportunity to be safe while operating government vehicles. I gotta do a walk around. Well, we don't have time for that! We have to get out of here! Survival's all about the basics. Forget the basics and your zombie bait. Failure to utilize our basic safety guidelines will result in horrific death by zombie mob. Always, always walk around the vehicle before backing up. It might feel like it's slowing you down, but you know what really slows you down? That's right. Nothing loses you time like being eaten alive by zombies. So we're shooting this sequence in the film where the zombies are about to get me, but who pulls up but a character played by my best friend Peter in a white F-250 with the city of Vancouver decals on the side. Peter's character kicks open the door and says something to the effect of, come with me if you want to live. For the whole day, we shoot scenes where my character and Peter's character are driving through the woods. But my character is all like being safe around cars. Whether it's texting, updating your calendar, talking on the phone, or fleeing from zombies. Distracted driving causes accidents. Oh my God, I'm being so safe around cars, you guys. This is like a real film shoot. There's sound guys and gaffers and assistant DPs and caterers. And even though this is just another day in the office for all the professionals working, for Peter and I, we feel a bit of anxiety about the scale of all this. And we're deeply inexperienced and are having to pick up all of the filmmaking lingo and technique and process on the fly. And adding to my anxiety, I'm having to fake it until I make it in more ways than one because of everyone on the shoot. I am the only person who knows that Peter, the person driving the vehicle in the driver safety video, does not have a driver's license. 
And this is, in fact, the only time in his life that he's even been in the seat on the driver's side of a vehicle. And yes, I knew this about him and let it happen. You may find yourself wondering, wait a second now, how exactly did Peter and I get to a place where of the two of us, the one without the driver's license is the driver in this scenario? Let's take a moment to talk about the script for this driver's safety video. Its style could be best described as loose, improvisational even, and there were so many other things happening around us like makeup touch-ups and lav mic rejiggerings, director notes, that in our loosey-goosey takes and riffs, we fail to realize that we have inadvertently established Peter's character as the driver. And then when, when we move on to the Peter behind the wheel dialogue scenes, which make up the majority of the film, we're like, wait, there's driving scenes in this driver safety video? But honestly, I'm not that worried because it's so isolated up there on this wood-lined road and the crew is so far away and there's no one milling about. It's just me and Peter and a sound guy on the floor behind us holding up a little microphone. So I'm not concerned. We get all the shots we need and it's near the end of the shoot and we're pulled over. And it's time for the big final shot before we wrap and we're just waiting for instructions from the director and that's when 40 extras show up in zombie makeup the director ambles up to our window and he says okay so for this final shot i'm gonna direct all of our extras to sort of just mill about the parking lot and peter if you could just sort of weave the truck through them going as fast as you're comfortable with and then bring the truck to a screeching stop just short of that building over there, we'll have the shot we need. Now I'm concerned. So for the first few takes, Peter <laughs> is so terrified and we're going so slow, it's ridiculous. There's like zombies passing us, we're going so slow. Peter's only going five kilometers an hour, so we're not getting the tire squealing sound that the shot requires. But each take, I see Peter getting a little more confident in a bad way. And the director comes up again. Let's try one more time. And Peter, really go for it this time. And as Peter rolls up the window, I know exactly what is about to happen. Wait, slow down, slow down, slow down. Peter weaves through the zombies at a frenetic pace. What? Hang on! Accelerates toward the building and slams on the brakes. Of all the stupid things people say when you're about to crash, hang on must be one of the stupidest. Hang on to what exactly? Zombies are slow. We are in a vehicle. There is no need to go fast. And the tires squeal, as do our voices, as Peter crashes the government truck through the government building in a driver's safety video paid for by the government. Everybody freezes. All the zombies are looking at us. All the union guys are like, what the fuck? 
it is such a big crash that people are emerging from all the buildings up there being like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Isn't it obvious we're making a driver safety video? One of the guys from the building we crashed into looks like he's in charge suddenly. He takes the director aside and he sort of looks like Sean Penn. And as they talk, we overhear the words incident report and investigation. Peter is beside himself. Usually Peter is unflappable, but in this moment, Peter is flapped. And I say, Peter, I think you need to tell the director that you don't have a driver's license. So we wave the director over. I'm thinking, he's a cool guy. I mean, he cast us. Peter speaks in hushed tones so that no one other than the sound guy still wearing headphones can hear what we're saying. He says, so I probably should have come clean about this earlier, but um, I am... Um, and this seems obvious now, but I, I jump in. Peter doesn't have a driver's license. I don't know how to drive, Peter adds helpfully. The director's eyes slowly drift away from us and fixate on the truck protruding from the building, his eyes indicating that he's running this new information through an elaborate internal algorithm, no doubt considering the film, the cost, the consequences of coming clean, his culpability, and his ability to fund future zombie-themed endeavors. After a full minute of silence, he squints his eyes resolutely, nodding to himself as he arrives at a solution in his mind. He gestures for us to come closer and whispers, This conversation never happened. Sean Penn goes back inside. The director comes over says, You guys should get out of here. So Peter and I drive back down to the city. I drive. For years after my star turn went public, well, in an internal use only kind of way, I couldn't even bring myself to watch The Driving Dead. Yes, that's what it's called, by the way. I, I didn't even tell my wife about it. She knows about it now, and honestly, our marriage feels different now that she's seen it. But now, eight years after the fact, there's Something to be said for the sight of myself, running like a panicked stick man figure in a hard hat and fluorescent yellow vest, trying my damnedest to remain calm and follow the rules while a chaotic zombie horde lurches after me. As far as metaphors go, isn't this the way we all kind of feel right now? Zombies are an enduring monster. They tend to pop up in times of cultural anxiety. They're versatile in our imaginations because it's easy for zombies to manifest as whatever we're worried about. And when we watch the zombie movie, we feel our fear, we feel our catharsis, and then the movie is over and we go back to our lives. Zombies help us deal with the horrors and anxiety of our real lives. This is the gift of a zombie movie. Slow down, speed kills. Workers of the city of Vancouver, and anyone with access to YouTube for that matter, you're welcome for your catharsis. 
Sam Mullins. That story was written by Sam. It was produced by Jennifer Warren and edited by me, AC Rowe. To see The Driving Dead in all its internal use-only glory, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. And I have to say, after watching it, I really do feel equipped to drive both an F-250 and a golf cart out of a pursuing zombie horde while wearing a hard hat. Safety first, kids. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Tanera McLean, Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Veronica Simmons, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.